And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose <coughs> of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning to our listeners. This is Lalitha Chalaya here. Hope you have a, had a good sleep. Now, the weather is warming up and we'll see more people out of the streets and hope you're listening to this program with your eyes wide open. Today's program is packed with a couple of um, very good interviews. One is, of course, with um, Humphrey McQueen, who will come later in the program at 8.30. And the first interview is with Aaron Malvaganam, who has been an activist in the Sri Lankan community for a long time. Now, Aaron was a refugee when he came as a child and um, he was in the uh, refugee camp in uh, Sri Lanka for about a year or so. And when he came here, he was again put into the refugee camp. Later, he was released. And today, he's a, a major activ- activist among the um, refugee community. Sri Lanka recently had elections on the 17th of August. And Aaron's about to give us a bit of a roundup about what Trans- may transpire or the actions over. I'll give you the results later. But this is what he had to say. Aaron, um, could you just give a description of what life is like in Sri Lanka today for the Tamil, particularly for the Tamil people? For the Tamil people living in the north and east of Sri Lanka after six years of uh, the, the final onslaught by the Sri Lankan military, uh, they live under a military uh, occupation Tamil homeland is virtually under a military occupation. For every four Tamil, there is an army member present in some villages. It's even more heavy. It's uh, for every three Tamils, there is an army member present. People are living in fear. There has been many reported cases of Tamil women being sexually assaulted. Most of the time, the, the perpetrators enjoyed the support of the military. Uh, singleization of the Tamil areas is taking place. Uh, land grabbing is another issue. Building of Buddhist temples in, in every parts of the Tamil area. Areas. Tamil fishermen are denied uh, their right to fish in certain areas while Sinhalese fishermen are being brought to the north to fish in areas where Tamils are supposed to be fishing. On top of that, military is, uh, is taking part in day-to-day life of the, the Tamil civilians in the north and east. They would take part in uh, many school events. They would. They're uh, running hotels. Uh, they're running the the tourism industry in the in the north and east. Uh, the military uh, has also other business interests uh, in the north and east. Six years after the so-called end of war, life is very bad for Tamils, and uh, uh, the messages that are coming from the uh, from the g- g- central government is that they intend to continue the genocidal agenda. 
Now, in January, there was a presidential election uh, which resulted in uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa being replaced by a new president, um, Maithripala Sirisena. Has this made any difference? On 8th of January, yes, Mahinda Rajapaksa, the man uh, Tamils feared for over 10 years, was defeated by uh, Maithripala Sirisena. Before I answer your question, I want to tell you about the, the people behind the new regime. Yes, Maithripala Srisena is the president. And then we have Ranul Vikramasinghe. We have uh, Chandrika Kumarathunga Bandaranaika, the ex-president of Sri Lanka. And we have Sarath Fonseca. Uh, these are the, the key people in the, uh, in the Maithripala Srisena camp. Maithripala Srisena uh, was part of Rajabaksha's cabinet for many years. Uh, in 2009, uh, when the killings were taking place, he was the acting defense minister. It was under his watch, thousands of Tamils were murdered by the Sri Lankan military. You know, according to the UN, over 70,000 Tamils were murdered by the Sri Lankan military in the final days of the war, and it was under the watch of Maitri Pala Sri Sena. Let's talk about Sarath Fonseca. He was the army general in charge of the war. He was the head of the army. And then we have Chandrika Kumarathunga and Ranil Vikramasinghe. Ranil Vikramasinghe is the prime minister of uh, Sri Lanka. Ranil Vikramasinghe has been a puppet of the West. He has been uh, prime minister previously as well in the in the 90s and in early 2000s. It was under his uh, watch the ceasefire talks uh, took place and it was him who betrayed the Tamils uh, during the peace talks. Uh, and he has been uh, prime minister during various famous uh, attacks which led to the deaths of many Tamil civilians. And then Chandrika Kumarudunga Bandaranaika, who's the daughter of SWRD Bandaranaika, she was responsible for so much atrocities in the 90s. Uh, she is the one who ordered... Uh, the killings of uh, thousands of Tamils uh, in the mid-90s. Over 500,000 Tamils were uprooted from the north, from Jaffna to Tamil Tiger-controlled areas in uh, in Wanni. It was under her watch my school was bombed. You know, I witnessed the bombing of my own brother, uh, many of my schoolmates and, and uh, cousins, and it was under her watch. Uh, my school was bombed. I remember she would uh, send her helicopters uh, to the Tamil to the Tamil areas, dropping leaflets asking us to stay inside the schools and and churches whenever there is attack nearby. And they bombed the churches and the schools, like the way Minder Rajapaksha did. Uh, in the final days of the war, asking people to stay inside the no-fire zone and bombing the no-fire zone. You know, these are the key people behind the new regime and they are, you know, their agenda is to wipe out the Tamil people from the north and east of Sri Lanka. And uh, uh, the genocidal agenda continues uh, under the new regime. There has been many uh, recent reports in credible medias uh, stating that there is a silent war against the Tamil people. And there is a silent war against the Tamil people. If you look at uh, some of the the events that are taking place, uh, we have heard a lot of cases of 
young Tamil girls being uh, sexually assaulted by uh, men who are enjoying the support of the Sri Lankan military, uh, widows who are complaining uh, that uh, they're, uh, you know, they're being uh, sexually harassed by uh, military men. Uh, there are many cases of uh, Tamil lands being taken by the military. So, you know, for Tamils, whether it's Rajabaksha or Maithri Pala, there is no difference. Uh, the genocidal agenda has been there for over 60 years. It continues under the, the new uh, Sri Sena regime, and it is likely to continue, even if there is a Tamil president in in power, because it's, you know, it's it's not the it's not the president uh, who is the problem. It's the it's the whole structure, uh, the military. It's the uh, it's the Buddhist um, uh, the Buddhist nationalism that is at the heart of all these problem, uh, which is uh, driving the genocidal agenda. So you know, just to think that by having Maithri Pala Sri Sena as president, everything is solved is. Um, it's easy for someone uh, you know who has uh, who has no uh, vested interest in sri lanka to say it uh, but uh, for someone who has relatives there someone who has um, who was born there i can't accept this there will be parliamentary elections on the 17th of august i take it you think that this won't make any difference either the parliamentary elections is a is a time to test various things at the moment, there are two Tamil political parties uh, uh, in the in the north, and then we have uh, single East parties in the south. Uh, the, if you look at the election manifesto of the the single East parties, they are all competing with each other. Who is going to be the one denying more uh, rights uh, for the uh, for the Tamils? And uh, when you look at the the Tamil parties in the north. Uh, it's a it's a it's it's a fight against who's going to win the freedom for uh, for the Tamil people uh, from the the SLFP and the UNP the major uh, single east political parties it is very clear uh, that uh, if they are elected um, if they win the majority uh, seats they're not going to do anything for the Tamil people uh, in the north the Tamil National Alliance which is the the major political party uh, which uh, won the support of a lot of people after um, you know Tamil Tigers endorsing it in the in the early two uh, thousands is has taken a, a stand um, that is appeasing the the Western countries, appeasing India, and in the meantime there is a, a political party called Tamil National People's Front led by Gajendra Kumar Ponambulam, whose dad was assassinated by uh, Chandrika Bandaranaika government. Uh, he has been uh, uh, running a campaign uh, calling for the recognition of the Tamil nation. They're not calling for the division of the country as Sri Lankan constitution does not allow them. So no political party can call for the restoration of the Tamil homeland. However, uh, they can call... Uh, for the recognition of the, the, the Tamil nation and the Single East nation in a united Sri Lanka, which is the maximum that they can call. And Tamil National People's Front is doing that exactly. And, and it has candidates in every seat. 
in the in the north and east and it has some really interesting candidates someone by the name Kogilawani is running uh for Kalinochi uh ward Kogilawani was an orphan uh, who was brought up by uh, the Senjola, the the Tamil Tiger orphanage, uh, Tamil Tiger run orphanage, and uh, eventually, uh, in the final days of the war, she was the one running the orphanage as well, and she's uh, very fluent in English. Um, she seems to be a shining light uh, among all these um, uh, all these negative things uh, Tamils are experiencing uh, at the moment uh, in the middle of uh, a military occupation. And there are many other uh, really good candidates uh, who have come forward to be a voice for their people. Next month, uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council will have a meeting which will include a discussion of Sri Lanka. Um, what do you think will happen there? Well, Channel 4, which is a very credible media, has come up with a leaked document which claims that the United Nations, while it may come up with uh, strong findings uh, about uh, what happened in the final days of the war, is likely to endorse domestic investigation. It's likely to endorse a domestic investigation, which means for Tamils, justice will be denied forever. Domestic investigation means asking the murderers to investigate their own crimes. And I mean that when we say domestic investigation, my three palace, three Sena, Sarath Fonseca and others who were in power, who were in charge of all these killings, they will be asked to investigate their own crimes. There, there will be a lot of witnesses, uh, Chris, I can tell you if there is a domestic investigation, will never come forward to uh, tell their stories. I have interviewed, as part of my work with Tamil Refugee Council in recent weeks, I have spoken to many witnesses who are currently living in Australia as refugees. They have clearly said that they will not speak out in a domestic if there was to be a domestic investigation they will never come forward and give testimony because as soon as they walk into that door and give statement and come out sri lanka's intelligence will make them disappear or at the least will harass their family members and uh, you know this is not new uh, for Tamils. It's been going on for many years. And if the United Nations is to endorse uh, a domestic investigation, they will be betraying the Tamil victims of Sri Lanka's genocidal war. So what would you like the United Nations to do? Well, we want the United Nations to firstly have an international investigation. Only an international investigation uh, will make sure that all those who committed crimes, war crimes and crimes against humanity are held accountable for what they did. Only an international investigation uh, will allow these perpetrators to be tried at an international criminal court. Finally, the Australian government argues that Sri Lanka is a democracy, it's now safe and therefore they can send back 
asylum seekers to Sri Lanka. So what, what comment would you have on the role of the Australian government? Australia's uh, role in the Tamil genocide uh, time and time again has been exposed in, uh, uh, in Australian media and other medias as well. Australia... Uh, shouldn't be deporting any Tamil refugees back to Sri Lanka. Australia, in the last six years, has been uh, responsible for many Tamils uh, being murdered uh, on their return by the Sri Lankan army. Under the Julia Gillard government, we saw over 2,000 Tamil refugees getting sent back. We saw over 40 Tamil men being negative, uh, being given negative security assessment. Uh, it was to the Tamils. Uh, Australian government first introduced enhanced screening process, uh, which meant that they get given 15 minutes to tell their story. If they uh, fail to uh, convince the authorities, they get sent back to the Sri Lankan government. You know, all this happened at uh, around the time when human rights groups all around the world were quite critical of the Rajabaksha regime and there are there, there was so much evidence available of Rajabaksha's uh, cruelty towards the Tamils and yet Australia chose to act uh, this way now Australia's uh, uh, treatment of uh, Tamil refugees is not surprising given what we have learned in the recent weeks. That is, Australian Federal Police uh, providing support to the Sri Lankan uh, military, Sri Lankan intelligence. Uh, Australia has used uh, international platforms to defend the uh, Sri Lankan government uh, at, uh, you know, at various platforms. Uh, the last time Australian government defended the Sri Lankan government was at the UN Human Rights Council when there was a resolution passed by Western countries criticizing the Sri Lankan. Australia was the only country supporting the Sri Lankan government. You know, Australia's role in the Tamil genocide is is well known. Uh, they are complicit in the genocide too. Okay, thanks very much, Aaron. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Yes, um, 3CR, and welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. You're listening to Letha Chalaya, um, and I was going to give you the updates on the um, election results in Sri Lanka. Uh, before that, I just would like to say that that interview was conducted by Chris Slee, who is a contributor to Green Left Weekly. And I conducted the panel while they while we recorded that interview. Now the Vikramasinghe pa- um, 
party, which Ronald Wickersminger is the current prime minister, and he has basically won the position back by being the majority uh, winner of all of seats uh, that happened um, in the election that happened on the 17th of August. Wickersminger's party won 106 out of the 225 seats. But this still doesn't give them a majority. But what will happen is um, Maitri um, Pala Srisena, who's the president, will completely support Ronald Vikramasinghe. And as Aaron said, that all of them were in the previous government in some form or other and were key figures in the oppression of the Tamils and the killing that happened in 2009 of thousands and thousands of Tamils. So the Tamil Party up the north was something um, that has not been publicized much. And the Tamil National Alliance, which has been there for for a while now, it was supported by the Tamil uh, Tigers in the past, but since then has slipped a little in their popularity because of the complicit nature of their policies with the uh, ruling Sinhala government. While they have won um, the elections in the north, they have lost a, a number of um, seats as well. The TN- TNPF, the Tamil National People's Front, which um, Aaron mentioned, and Koikilavani, who stood for that particular party, has, has tripled his votes. While they didn't win a seat, they won up to 5% of the votes, and this is a party that, that will be growing. <clears throat> it's suffice it to say that the Tamil struggle in Sri Lanka is very similar to what's happening in Palestine against the Israeli um, occupation. And, of course, the Kurds, whose nation has been divided into four, and no less, the Australian Aboriginal people are fighting against the white-dominated government in Australia. So let's have a look at what hap- what's happened in the broader, broader uh, sphere about the Sri Lankan elections. What we have is China, who is one of the major trading partners of Sri Lanka, wishing them... a uh, um, the best, and it stands ready to work with Sri Lanka, as it has for a long time. One of the major strategic concerns there is the um, massive and very um, attractive and lucrative port in Thirukumunamalai, as we say it in Tamil, and of course, Westerners call it Trikumali. This has this port has been a point of attraction for Western nations, especially the U.S. Hence, the silence in the United Nations in relation to addressing the atrocities that were committed against the Tamil population over the last thirty years. The um, Chinese government will continue to have enormous trade with uh, Sri Lanka as a result of the election, and of course, it doesn't change the situation as such. The Secretary of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, has also commended the government on conducting a peaceful election. And he says one of the most, uh, well, I guess, the most smooth elections they've had for a long time without much disruption. We also have uh, one of Sri Lanka's allies and right next door to them, that's India. Prime Minister Narendra Modi um, called Ranul Vikramasinghe to congratulate him on his party's victory in the elections, although he didn't win an outright majority, as I said. And he also said, I'm confident that under Mr. Vikramasinghe's leadership, bilateral ties between India and Sri Lanka will be stronger. Now, that is telling because um, India has provided a lot of support to the Sri Sri Lankan army in relation to oppressing the Tamils for a long time now. 
We shall go to announcement and then move on to Rank and File Radio. And thank you, Aaron and Chris Lee. The Kurdish Workers' Party, otherwise known as the PKK, was established in 1984 to fight for the self-determination of Kurdish people in Turkey. It is supported by millions of Kurds and in recent times has played a crucial role in defending Kobani and Rojava against ISIS. Yet the Australian government named the PKK as a prescribed terrorist organisation in 2005 and it has remained on the list ever since. The listing comes up for review in August 2015. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is calling for the PKK to be delisted and are collecting endorsements. You can add yours by going to www.liftthebanonthepkk.org. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Sun e go down, sun e come up, no worries, tap yet, long west Papua. Sun e go down, sun e come up, no worries, tap yet, long west Papua. Only like him freedom, yeah, freedom, long west Papua. Only one talk belong you me. Only run away in about. Now I'd long big boost. Only like him freedom. Beside by Hollywood. Only run away in about. Now I'd long big boost. Only like him freedom. Beside by Hollywood. Well, I like it freedom, yeah, freedom. Long West Papua, all the one talk belong to me. Well, I like it freedom, yeah, freedom. Long West Papua, all the one talk belong to me. Give me freedom. 
This is uh, Solid Attitude Breakfast on 3CR on 855 AM on your 855 on your AM dial. A bit early in the morning for me. A um, couple of announcements. The um, 29th Saturday, which is a week from today, presents an uh, opportunity for people to mobilize against a, a few issues. Malaysia has been in turmoil. And um, if for regular listeners, you would have heard uh, two, two uh, visitors from Malaysia who were interviewed in relation to what's happening there. The extreme corruption and the prime minister who had, um, had $700 million transferred to his account and his wife who had taken cash in millions to deposit in the bank. And there's a movement called Brissette that started a few years ago fighting against the corruption in in Malaysia. Brissette has uh, now mobilized his forces again. There will be a demonstration on Saturday around 10.30, I think, at Fed Square in support of the people of Malaysia and against corruption in Malaysia. Now, the... Um, other demonstration is, as you heard before, a petition against the um, a, a petition to lift the ban, the PKK, as a terrorist organisation by Australia. The the demonstrations against the current attacks on the Kurds in um, Rojava area, the Kurds have been fighting against the ISIS uh, movement, which has been atrociously. Um, genocidal up in the Middle Eastern area, and of course the U.S. had wanted to fight against them. Now the complicating factor there is that while the Kurds were fighting against the ISIS movement and were winning, the Turkish government that was elected failed to get a majority of the last elections. To divert attention from its inability to form a government or legitimate government, the current um, Turkish government is attacking not just ISIS, but also the Kurds who are fighting against ISIS. U.S. has been silent on this matter. So that the protest to support the Kurds is happening on the 29th following the Brussels. So if you're free, please attend these protests coming Saturday. We've got, we now move on to Rank and File by Marcus Harrington, who's a member of the NUW. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR, Jimmy O'Connor from the South Australian Construction Division of the CFMEU is the special guest. O'Connor is yet the latest unionist to be persecuted by the courts in this country for simply doing the job he was elected to do to represent his members. And Jimmy joins me on the line today. And welcome to Rank and File Radio uh, today, Jimmy. Thank you, mate. How are you? Very well, thanks. Yeah. Okay, so um, you're the latest union official to be victimised by this conservative Abbott Liberal government. Uh, who are hell-bent on destroying Australia's union movement uh, with multiple officials facing charges at the present time and currently with a a politically motivated Royal Commission with your union, the CFMU, under heavy attack, Jimmy. Yeah, it is, mate. Look, it's across the whole country. You know, uh, the the Abbott government's just hell-bent on one thing and that's um, getting stuck into the unions to 
bring down working conditions and um, and, and rates of pay for for our members. Our members um, fight hard for all the conditions and and pay that they've got over the years, and uh, we're determined to make sure that it stays that way. That's you know, and he's hell bent on bringing us apart. And the charges you know, so uh, against yourself uh, relate to an incident uh, from May in 2014, uh, where you were simply undertaking your job as a union official. Yeah, yeah, I was actually uh, trying to get one of the local lads a job, um, not not being discriminated in any other way, but the, the labour hire f- firm was uh, employing 457 visa workers, and I just asked the question, was there room there to, to get the young lad a job? He agreed at the start, and then... Uh, after that, he sort of turned turned the uh, tail on me and said, "No, no, he's not going to employ the local lad." And uh, through 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 that conversation, um, the FWBC got hold of uh, his information and uh, took me on a contempt of court charge, okay. saying that I was forced forced to give uh, you know look after young local labour on the job of uh, you know a two billion dollar project. You know, there's nothing that South Australia's ever seen before, and we couldn't get local labour on the job. It was a disgrace. And uh, why do you think bosses prefer to use these four, five, seven visa workers over local workers? Oh, obviously, they can go in there and they can put the pressure on the visa workers and um, force them to work, you know, extraordinary long hours. And uh, knowing that the uh, the visa workers uh, can't really complain because if they do, they lay them off. They've got to keep the same employer for six months, yep. so they have that vulnerability where they, you know, they're going to toe the line and do stuff that they wouldn't normally do if they were in another circumstance of full-time employment. You know, and um, most of the visa workers that I did speak to, you know, would come and see the union. The first thing they would say is, don't tell the boss, because if he does, he'll sack me. You know, and so the, the, the employers know this, and they use it to their advantage, you know, to get on top of the uh, the young visa workers that come into the country, and um, they exploit them. And, and that's that's exactly what it is. They're being exploited, you know, and uh, from the union movement, we'll, we'll defend any worker, regardless of, you know, who they are, what they are, where they've come from. Unionism is about holding everyone together. You know, and uh, we were just seeing it time and time again, the workers being exploited through this visa system. It's a disgrace that the Australian government, you know, would, would go down this road to their own people, to put their own people out of work for the sake of trying to bring down working conditions and rates of pay, you know, it's a disgrace. And that's the same uh, spirit handed down from the Eureka Rebellion and way back in 1854 when workers from all different countries, all different nationalities all uh, stood together and fought together. Yes. You know, th- th- this country is, is unique in itself of, of how multi we are in the country and how much we do bring on, you know. Well, you know, myself, I was born in Scotland and, and we, we immigrated out here in 1967, you know, and uh, I'd be the first one to stand up and, and give someone a job and give anybody a go. But when they use the advantage of exploiting the overseas workers, it's an absolute disgrace, and, you know. And then, you know, the union moving together with these people, we will get together and we will get stronger because um, we're not going to stand here and, and, and take this adverse action. You know, um, the CFMEU are very proud of their history. You know, we're, we're one union that's come from very different facets of a lot of unions into one union yep. for the simple reason we are there to look after the workers, first and foremost. You know, the mem- membership of the union means everything to us. You know, we're not going to stand back and allow this government to come in and, and dictate its rules to us because we've uh, we've been around a long time. We're not going anywhere. That's about the CFMEU. It's whatever it takes is our motto, and that's all stand by that to the day I'll leave this job. And that's what we've seen yeah. numerous governments come and go, but the union movement's always been here in Australia for more than 100 years. That's right, and we'll be here for another 100 more. You know, We're not going that's anywhere. Right. This is part of our culture. It's part of our structure. 
You know, we're proud people, we're proud of our country, and we'll defend it and we'll defend our workers with whatever it takes. That's what it's about, you know. We, we are a proud nation, and, and I'll, I'll be one of the first ones to stand here and, and defend it, you know. I'm not going to stand back and allow this government to dictate to us. And currently we're seeing the trade unions face yet another Royal Commission from a Liberal government. Uh, the union movement has survived every Royal Commission. I mean, they've tried it time in, time out, but the, the union movement survives. Yeah, we will, mate. And look, it, it, it's like anything, you know, he, he's throwing that much money at the Royal Commission, he's throwing that much money at the FWBC or the ABCC, whatever you want to call the grubs, you know, they'll continue to throw money at these people because they know he's hell-bent on breaking us down. We'll, we'll, they won't break us down. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. It's as, as long as they're, you know, that, that we can stand and swear by the Southern Cross, you know, we'll truly stand by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties, and I'll stand by that. You know, he can throw that much money at this Royal Commission and also the FWBC. Why doesn't he put that money into education and hospitals and looking after pensioners instead of running and, running a, a hijacked witch hunt after the unions of this country? It's an absolute disgrace. And this anti-worker, anti-union Abbott government determined to smash the, the unions. If there's no investigation into the construction companies in this land and companies that kill and injure workers, I mean, where's the investigation into that? Yeah, there, there is none, and, and you won't see it. You know, it's a. I think you look into the construction industry. There's more insolvent companies in the construction industry than any other industry, and yet there is nothing done about it. Workers continually losing money through superannuation, through wages, can't collect any money that's gone, and these companies fold up, dish out, move on, and start up again. You know, we had the the, the head of the NBA here. Um, running a company here with Tagara and, and, and 750 subbies went down the drain. And, and the, you know, the first thing that... The, where's the Royal Commission into these clubs? There it never is. There never is. There's a law for, law for one and, and, and another law for others, you know. It's, um, we, we seem to be copping the brunt of it all the time, the union movement, you know, because they think it's an easy get, you know. It's just like anything, mate. You dig hard enough, you're going to find some dirt somewhere and, and the stuff they found on the union movement, it's, it's absolute garbage. He, he extended the Royal Commission 12 months because he, he found nothing in the first 12 months. Not a goddamn thing on us, you know, and the stuff he's finding on us now is, you know, it's, it's petty stuff, you know. It's, it's not about the true hard union people that are out there working hard every day, you know. What about the, the blokes that are losing money hand over fist and companies going broke? He, he doesn't do a thing about it. He's not interested you know, it's no point scoring for him. He thinks he's got the point scores with his blue-nosed grubby bastards that, you know, that, that, that want to keep us out of the game. Well, they're not going to keep us out of the game, I'm afraid. We're here to stay. And hopefully Thursday's news where Royal Commissioner Dyson Hayden, he was forced to pull out of a Liberal Party fundraiser. Uh, I mean, hopefully that's the first yeah, nail into his coffin. It, mate. <laughs> it just goes to show, you know, who he's having dinner with. You know, what a disgrace. They ought to shut down the Royal Commission and turf him out straight away. What an absolute disgrace. Biased. The reason he's in there is because he's supposed to be non-biased. Well, you know, I reckon he'd lean pretty hard to the right, that bloke. So now, maybe he walks straight, to tell you the truth. He's as unbiased as the Collingwood cheer squad. Yeah, as they say, dead right, mate. Yes, they are. You're very right there, Marcus. And there's another CFMEU official, uh, Johnny Lomax from Canberra, and then there was also Dave Kerner in South Australia also, who in recent times have been harassed by authorities for serving their members. Yes, and uh, Johnny Lomax is... Um, He's gone in and, and negotiated like we all negotiate better wages and conditions for our members. They pulled him up on a um, standover tactics and blackmail. What a disgrace. Dave Kerner had had numerous phone calls of um, the, uh, the lads on the job. But there were One of the lads was um, contemplating suicide. He was, he'd rushed down to the job. He'd had all the right paperwork to get in. And they harassed him on that. 
suicide prevention. They want to kick the lad off the job and take him to court over it. It's an absolute disgrace, you know. I, I just can't believe where these people get off. You know, it's um, it's uh, look, it, it's going to come to an ugly head, you know. And you've got the waterfront workers dispute now with the MUA, and it, it stinks of Patrick's all over again, you know. And uh, his mate Peter Reith and him were, were, were both embroiled in that with, with little Johnny Howard, and he's trying the same tactics again, you know. And um, the, the, they're just going to make us come together even harder and stronger, and and and, and find more resolve within the union movement. That's what you'll find with us. And look, he's a one-term, one-trick pony. Um, I think that the people of Australia will see, it's definitely the working people of this country will see that, you know, South Australia at the moment runs at about 10 or 12% unemployment. I think youth unemployment must be up around about 19 or 20%. Um, manufacturing, he's killed manufacturing in, in, in our state and in this country. The shipbuilding industry is on its knees. He won't do anything there. He, he's gave a powder puff promise of, you know, in 2020. Uh, you know, he, he won't be around in 2020, so I don't know what he's promising. You know, that we'll build the boats in 2020. I'll give you $89 billion. It, it's a joke, an absolute joke. There's already $50 million he'd already allocated. So I've got another $30 billion that he's worrying about for the, for the future of the shipbuilding in this industry, in this country. It's an absolute disgrace. And at the same time, we face a labour hire... Um the labour hire, the casualisation crisis in this country where nearly half the workers are employed in this insecure, precarious form of employment. Yeah, look, I think the late 80s, early 90s, we tried to stamp out labour hire in this country and, and, and it got its foot in the door and now it's entrenched in, in, in our industry. And um, look, it's American way of, of dealing with, with workforces where they want casualisation of labour, where people are, are begging at the front door every day for a job and the, the boss walks out and picks who he wants to pick out for a job, a day's work every day. It's, it's ridiculous. The casualisation will do nothing to solve unemployment in this country. You know, a whole country... in my father, your father, forefathers before us were all full-time employees. They were never casualisation of the, of the, in this country, and that's what held the country in good stead. You know, any country in the world that, that that's winning and, and looking well don't have casualisation in their workforce. It just doesn't work. You need full-time employment, people that are committed and want to work for a good company. The problem is we can't find enough good companies. That seems to be the issue. They all believe this bloke's, you know, little Chairman Mao read book of, of how you get about capitalism in this country. It's an absolute disgrace. You know, gutted by it, you know, and the, the, it'll only take a certain amount of time, Marcus, before, you know, the majority of people in this country, when we go to the polls, and hopefully the guy he calls an early poll, and we do go to the poll and we vote the bastard out, simple as that. And then uh, then the real challenge is on, we need to keep on the case of the ALP. Well, they, 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 they need to stand up, you know, they've, um, they've been a bit of a, um, a soft target, you know, honestly, to the work, the workers in this country, where they could have been doing a hell of a lot more for the workers in this country, and... You know, Julie Gillard and 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 um, and, and, and Rudd had and Kevin Rudd had the, the opportunity to get rid of the FWPC in this country, and they should have stamped them out for the working people. It's only made it worse that this rabbit's got in, and now he's going to back them to the hill. So when we go to the polls, to make sure that when when Labor does get in, and they will get in, they have to do something for the working class people of this country. Start looking after them. The Labor Party was built from Labor, from workers. That's what the party's about. And they need to stick to them old group values and not deter. Look after the people of this country and the country will be all right. Because the Labor Party do, like you said, Mark, is they need to stand up and, and look after the people in this country. That's one thing they need to do. And the union movement. Let's not hide away that the Labor Party is built on unionism. We have a stronghold in the, in, in the Labor Party. Let's not hide from that fact. Because we're, we're proud of that. And that's what the party came, came about. And so we'll be proud about getting back involved in... In, in that party again and making sure that when they do get in there we are involved and we'll make a stand for the working class people of this country. 
And it was a Labor no, they, government they, that pursued another South Australian construction worker, Ark Tribe, back in 2009. Correct, correct. Ark Tribe went through a hell, a hell of a trial, you know, for, for going to a union meeting and not disclosing what happened in that union meeting. If these people want to know what goes in, in, into a union meeting, become a fucking union member. You know, it's, it's a bloody disgrace. They, 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 they're taking people to the cleaners, working class people, for stuff that we believe in, you know. It's um, the Labor government, you know, they, they, they really got to stand up, the Labor government, because they, they, they haven't done that. They haven't done great things for the working class people. You know, the, the history of that, that, that whole political party has been built on the back of good, hard work and Australian people and unionist people. And they need to get back to those core values, because that's what they've differed different away from and, and that's what's got us into the trouble we're in now you know the Labor government are, are not a true Labor government they need to get back to the grassroots of Labor in this country and, and, and look after the working class people oh, that's what you know, it was they, they, owe it, they owe it they owe it Marcus that's what it was formed out of shearers who were on strike at the time that's where the ALP comes from exactly you know and they chased the shearers for the 45D you know over 100 years ago and you know, under a Labor government, they chased myself and fellow unionist workers here in, in Adelaide with 45 Ds, you know. So it's, um, it's, uh, it, it makes a mockery of the Labor Party when, when they're in power and things like this happen, you know. You know? And it was on Thursday, August 13, uh, that you appeared in court as the judge heard arguments uh, for the sentencing, Jimmy? Yes, yes, he did. Um, I, uh, I'm back in court again today at 4 o'clock to find the, the final result of what the sentencing is. He, uh, he took submissions yesterday from both sides, obviously my side and the uh, FWBC side. Uh, obviously the FWBC will be looking for a stronger and higher and more aggressive penalty and uh, you know, we'll, um, we'll, we'll see his judgment at 4 o'clock today, mate. And um, obviously uh, with you, uh, OK, and if we get back on the radio, I'll, I'll definitely pass on those, um, the outcome of, of, of his verdict today after 4 o'clock. OK. Thanks for coming on today's edition of Rank and File Radio, Jimmy. Cheers, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Writers, poets and graphic novelists, the Lord Mayor's Creative Writing Awards are now open. This is your chance to win up to $6,000 and gain recognition for your writing. The awards are for emerging writers residing in Victoria. Fire up your laptops, sharpen your pencils, fill your fountain pens and get writing. Find out more at melbourne.vic.gov.au slash LMCWA. City of Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. The Melbourne Street Medics need your help. On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. Thank you, Marcus, for the Union part of Solidarity Breakfast. And welcome back to uh, 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, the regular Saturday morning program. We'll have some music before we go on, go on to our regular contributors to, to satire on this program. Battle of New Orleans 
the end of the early British wars. The young land started growing, the young blood started flowing, but I ain't marching anymore. For I killed my share of engines in a thousand different fights. I was there at the little bay I heard many battle I and I saw many more and I Mexican land fought in the bloody civil war. Yes, I even killed my brothers and so many others, but I ain't marching anymore. For I marched to the battles of the German trench in a war that was bound to end all wars. Oh, I must have killed a million men and now they want me back again, but I Mushroom roar. When I saw the cities burning, I knew that I was learning that I ain't marching anymore. Now the labor leaders screaming when they close the missile plant. United Fruit screams at the Cuban shore. Call it peace or call it treason, call it love or call it reason. And that was Phil Oaks with I Ain't Marching Anymore. We are just going to move on to Kevin Healy, who's our regular contributor to this program with his wonderful satire. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when first a warning. This segment contains disgusting, filthy language. The sensitive and dear little children should tune out now. Week when, just as the government got or thought it had got the body business out of the way and it was all steam ahead for the important business of getting things undone, the bloody machine sputtered to a halt again. A tax on a man of integrity just because he couldn't read a simple invitation. Referendum or plebiscite, which is best to bury marriage equality? Vigilante, long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden work in an iron lots, exploiting the legal system to slow down the end of the world and... Well, we have this leak from Cabinet that a number of ministers were sitting there moving around uncomfortably, crossing and uncrossing their legs, fidgeting, and eventually had to excuse themselves. I'm busting for a leak, each of them said, which, as I say, was a leak, but then poor big supremo, tiny a bit more for the boss's captain's pick Cabinet, has more leaks than the MCG toilets at half-time including leaks upon leaks about leaks upon leaks. And if the week that was might be extremely crude, apologies for what's coming. Here comes the disgusting, filthy language listener. While the others might have a leak problem, a bladder problem, and some are even pissed off, poor Tiny's shitting himself. 
But seriously, given the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission hanging judge, Dick's son, no hide in his bias, said he had no idea it was a caring business class party fundraiser. The fact that he was obviously unable to read a simple invitation, no idea that all funds go to the caring business class party, might have been a, a little hint there was some small connection with the caring business class party, we'd have to start wondering, nay, worrying about all those decisions he made. He, he was known as a serial dissenter from his cohort and his honours, but the explanation now seems to be pretty simple. If he can't comprehend a simple invitation, how could he understand complicated legal arguments? In other words, he just had no idea what was going on. That other giant mind, Minister for the Caring Business Class, Erica Betts on the Bosses, whose brilliance we reflected last week when he declared balaclava-clad thugs keeping sadly let go by email at midnight workers off the wharves, showed just how evil the workers were. Well, Eric got stuck into the unions and the out-of-control socialists again, pointing out this week the old Dixon funeral was a dead issue because Dixon didn't attend the event anyway. Eric just may have missed the not inconsequential fact that, like Bronnie, the old Dixon suddenly had his burst of moral integrity just as the proverbial was hitting the fan, covering him in it bit scatological today, aren't we? Or, or just as possibly, Eric is just as slow as the old dick started putting two and two together. As we also mentioned last week, Tiny said he would defend the integrity of an esteemed jurist. A man of great integrity and attorney general George Brandy's brain said anyone who criticised Dixon over this small oversight was in contempt. In fact, the Lord Rupert of Wapping usual suspect giant mind columnist said the whole thing was a socialist plot to get the evil unions and evil socialists off the hook. The great thinkers are running riot and the constant is... From the lips of all no hiding his bias defenders oozes the word integrity. But but hang on, didn't he splutter last week that he had no idea it was a caring business class party function and then this week emails have shown he knew from the start. Oh, oh, oh no, no problem. That's their version of integrity. And of course it also came out that the old Dixon, the man of integrity, had been on the panel awarding Tiny's Rhodes Scholarship, which certainly answers a lot of questions we've had about Tiny's Rhodes Scholarship. Although it's also logical, former Socialist Party Supremo Kim Beesnees, whose courage over the Tampa lies is legendary, former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself. After all, the scholarship does honour a racist arch-conservative. So, Dixon, leaks and marriage equality, given as the aforementioned George Brandy's brain concedes, indeed argues, Parliament can just legislate... After all, we have a government if and when it could get things undone intent on reducing taxes for the rich. Sort of redundant given they don't pay any, but I suppose they've got to keep the tax-deductible tax avoidance industry in business. Intent on slashing taxes for the rich by slashing government spending on money wasting essential services, which, as big economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, explains, is out of control. Given it can just legislate and given the massive cost to the public purse of a referendum or plebiscite, what happened to that spending out of control bit? 
a plebiscite on holding a referendum or a referendum on holding a plebiscite. Tiny, a few weeks after explaining it was a matter for Parliament, not a referendum, has had a sudden burst of democracy. Let the people decide. And while his bring in the hayseed and sheep shit lot, manoeuvre was also all about democracy, nothing to do with being tricky. We can rely on Tiny to come up with an equally non-tricky referendum question. After all, the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in the last even darker ages managed to devise a question on republicanism which succeeded in outmanoeuvring the vast majority. As a court-ruled former good union official, Cathy on principle had got about one and a half mil of low-paid workers' money mixed up with her own lifestyle, Tiny and Team Trublawazi declared this showed just how evil the corrupt unions and the Socialist Party are, that they were responsible for her abuse of low-paid workers. Uh, but Tiny, you said she was heroic, a very credible whistleblower, a brave, decent woman when she attacked her own union. What I am saying and what I said then is that this heroic, very credible whistleblower, brave, decent woman shows just how evil the corrupt unions and Socialist Party are. Just how evil the corrupt unions and Socialist Party are. Uh, so a caring business class party, a parachick knocking a couple of million off your lot, means the caring business class party is evil and corrupt. That is a reprehensible inference. This incident shows just how evil the corrupt unions and socialist party are, that their immorality, their evil, their corruption can spread so far that no one is safe from their evil corruption, their evil corruption. The Minister for Pollution, Hunt the Greenies, bemoaned the sad fact that environmental laws were being used, wait for it, talk about abusing the system, used to protect the environment. That's not what they're there for. These laws being abused by the long-haired greenies have to be rescinded if I am to achieve my role as Minister for Pollution. The government said the long-haired lot had all this money to run these vexatious, vigilant cases, which must leave the world oil cartels green. Well, no, not green, but you know what I mean. With envy, anyway, that small environmental groups have so much wealth. New laws, as I read them, would mean that those proposing new pollution would have to live right next door to their pollution. Adani, the environment, for instance, will have to move its headquarters, Hunt the Greenies explained, from India to the Galilee Basin and all the great lifting the world out of poverty coal mining fossil companies will have to conduct their board meetings deep inside their own mines. See, clearly, unless we live next door to a coal mine or the Great Barrier Reef, we have no right whatever to be concerned about possible threats to their environment, particularly since all approvals, and they are all approved, assure the great caring corporation will ensure the environmental impact will be minimal. They all say that, which reveals even more clearly just how irresponsible these long-haired commie greenies are, thinking environmental laws have something to do with protecting the environment. On fossils, not stealing and obeying the law, US of the UN of the US of the world energy giant Chevron, the environment, has this great scheme with related party loans that have its trillions of dollars of US oil profits 
made in Troubluwazi. And it's Troubluwazi profits made in the US of. Sadly, Big Supremo Chuck Bloated IV looked very upset. It means we can't pay tax to anybody. What a tragedy! The Troubluwazi government is talking about tightening laws to prevent transnational tax avoidance. But US of firms have demanded more time. We need more time to find the loopholes. That is not to say we don't just love tax avoidance. But having said that, we pay every cent of tax we are legally obliged to pay. Uh, uh, But the records say you don't pay any. That you claim tax deductions and the public purse pays you. That goes to what I said. We have great, great love for the law. And finally, while industry super fund Hester has divested its shares in Transfeld the refugees over that company's role on Nauru and Manus Island, the company explained its shares have risen 45% since it won the contract to fell the refugees. So clearly, given the choice, Transfeld explained, between morality and profit, it's a no-brainer. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin, for this bit of humor in the morning that you need in this current political situation. Now, we are now going on to Humphrey McQueen, who is a freelance writer and a political commentator. Morning, Humphrey. Good morning, Ali. How are you? I'm very well. That's good. That's good. So we are moving on to our series, um, What is Capital? Yes, yes. Well, it does seem to be taking longer than I thought it was going to every time. Mark One bit opens out onto another bit, but you know, that's but the Mark's, nature of the system. Yeah, but Mark spent years on it, Humphrey. This is nothing. No, I know, I know, I know, I know. We're only we're only scratching the very surface of what he of he revealed to us, and it is. I mean, it is vitally important, I think, for us to understand the depth of how the system works so that we can help to make sense of every particular issue that comes along, whether it's something like the China Free Trade Treaty. Otherwise, you just, you know, buffeted from one, you know, news grab to the next uh, and you don't get anywhere. So that's what we've got to try and do and what we've been doing, uh, talking, as you say, about how does capital expand. Uh, Now, this morning, I'm going to just look at one of the three aspects of that process, um, you know, there is the production of surplus value, then there is the circulation of it so that it gets the product in which the surplus value is embodied can be sold, and then the profit is then realised back to the um, employer's class, and then they have to reinvest it so that it can expand. So they're the three elements of it, and you can't do without any one of them. But this morning, again, is just going to concentrate on the production area of it, where surplus value is truly produced um, um, within the three circuits. Um, now, one of the things I think we need to get very clear, what I'm really talking about this morning is exploitation. And the two kinds of meanings of that word, um, there's the, the, the ordinary common sense meaning, Um, And then there is Marx's scientific analysis of how exploitation really takes place within a capitalist society. And these, while they overlap, are not the same thing. And the whole point of it is to clarify 
the difference between what, you know, the kind of, as I say, the common sense use of the word and the scientific use of the word is. Now, the politics of it are that we're not supposed to say this. <laughs> That's right. Capitalist system <laughs> is not supposed to be intrinsically exploitive. Of course, there are, you know things that go wrong on the margins. You know, there's a bit of exploitation over here or there's a bit of a um, Melbourne sweatshop, you know, situation there. Or perhaps even Lord Vesty and the Aborigines in the 1960s and the Gurindji. They might be considered to be aberrations of the system. But what Marx says, of course, is that, for his point of view, exploitation is the nature of the system. Mm. And there is no getting away from that. But what he's talking about is not the same necessarily as the Melbourne sweatshop situation. Um, so what's the difference? We talk about unpaid overtime, about speed-ups, you know, we talk about slave drivers. <clears throat> All of those things fit very comfortably, I think, into the common-sense version of exploitation. Yes. Um, but what Marx wants to do is to take us beyond that and to say uh, it is not necessarily the case from a scientific analysis of capitalism, that even something like the Aborigines in the Northern Territory before the um, Aboriginal Workers' Award came in in 1966, it's not necessarily that they were being exploited in the sense that Marx argues through the great volumes of capital. Now, that might come as a shock to people um, if they haven't thought, if they haven't gone through Marx's analysis of the capitalist system, um, because it seems on first sight that, that the situation that the Aborigines had there um, was obviously um, exploitation. Um, they were, you know, I mean, and Marx wouldn't deny that they were being exploited in, a, in the common days, in the common sense version of the term. Um, what he discovered, though, as I said, was a different sense of the term exploitation. And in every area of science, what the scientist does is to distinguish appearance, the common sense version of the world, from the dynamic reality that isn't apparent on the surface. And that's what he did in the analysis of capital. Yeah, this also applies to the colonization of land across the world. Well, he would say, um, he talks there about the primary accumulation of capital. Mm. And so that there are two elements to this, and you know you rightly point to the fact that while once the Aborigines are made to work for the Lord Vesty, hmm. uh, the question about exploitation comes in there. But before you got to that, there's the primary accumulation of capital in which their country was taken away from them. So that the first level of exploitation by which it is possible makes it possible for the other exploitation to take place, is that they are deprived of the resources which they had previously and which they could have used to keep themselves without having to sell their labour power. Hmm. Now, not that they were quite selling their labour power, uh, but all the way around the world, in, you know, in England from the, well, really from the 15, 14th, 15th century yes. onwards, yes. we had what was called the enclosure movement. Uh, so that what you get with that colonialism is a kind of global enclosure movement mm. in which people are deprived of not all of their land um, because that you know that's a bit more complicated. But you know, but basically they have to sell themselves in order to be able 
to survive because of that uh, primary accumulation. Now, um, you know, the Aborigines before 66, well, before 63, it gets a bit complicated when the old people get the age pension. Um, but before then, what all they were getting, either from the government or from the Lord Vesty, were rations. They were just getting, um, you know, flour, tea, sugar and tobacco. Uh, um, that was it. Now, you'd have to say that on the surface, of course, that has to be exploitation. Yeah, you but, forgot the alcohol bit. <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't... Well, at that stage, alcohol wasn't there. Hmm. You know, I mean, that's one of, the, one of the terrible things that has happened really since the um, early 1960s. I mean, these people were a long way away from the towns. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, alcohol wasn't the disaster that hmm. it... Um, so going, it certainly became afterwards. So going back to this, this acquiring of land or invasion and stealing of the land, could you classify it as the first step towards exploitation? Oh, absolutely. That's what I was just saying. I mean, it is, it is the fundamental precondition. Hmm. That's why Marx calls it the primary accumulation of capital. Hmm. Um, but once that's happened, you then go on to the, the following stage. And here, what we, we have to think about is a long phrase, which we will have to unpick in two parts, what Marx talks about, <clears throat> the socially necessary costs of reproducing labour power. Mm-hmm. Because the Aborigines then have their labour power, um, as all workers do, and it's the only property that they've got left. Um, and that's their commodity. It's what we have to sell in order to survive. Now, this question of socially necessary um, is where the complications come in about what is exploitation. Because you have to then ask yourself, how much did it cost the Aborigines to reproduce their labour power? Um, now, we don't have the pound, shillings and pence for that. Mm. Um, but what we do know is that the Gurindji were well enough fed, housed and clothed to go on providing labour power for the Lord's Vesti. Mm. Uh, we also know that they were able to do that from one generation onto the following generation. Now, that wouldn't have happened had they been in a permanent famine situation. Mm. Um, and also, of course, their housing and educational costs were you know, pretty well zero. Um, and that those needs for housing and for their education, of course, they were still taking place in what we could call traditional society. So there was no labour cost involved in that in terms of their having to reproduce themselves mm, to present to the Lord Vesti. The, the difficulty I'm... T- oh, what I'm trying to grapple with here, first, the privatisation of land was just before it became commodified. And then you have the invasion of land, which further extends that uh, privatization and then exploitation, and then you steal land as primitive capital. Yes, yep. And then you you exploit the people who owned or previously owned the land to then exploit the land so you can produce the profits out of it and expatriate it. Yes. Okay. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Move um, on. That's... That. 
That's certainly where we've got to. But what we're looking at now is, in what sense were the Gurindji and all the other people like them, and indeed workers everywhere in the world, I'm just taking the Gurindji as one extreme end, and mm. in a minute we'll get to the other extreme. Um, look at somebody earning $1,000 a day and ask whether they're being exploited. Yes. So we're really looking at somebody who's only getting rations, mm. you know, as the extreme end, and asking this question just for clarification of this uh, issue by making these two extremes. Uh, are they being exploited in Marx's sense of are they getting the full value of what it costs them to reproduce their labour power? Uh, because that's the hard question that Marx presents to us. Uh, what is the socially necessary cost of reproducing their labour power? Not just for this generation, but from one generation on to the next, because the capitalists need all of that reproduction to be taking place. Now, it's certainly true that if exploitation wasn't taking place in Marx's sense, then the Lord Vesty would have gone out of business. Um, because unless they're taking the surplus value that the workers produced, whether they were the Gurindji or whether they were the European people who were working on the station as well, all of them were being exploited. Mm. But the point that Marx would make is that because of asking the socially necessary question, that the costs of reproducing the indigenous labour power were not the same as the costs of reproducing the... Uh, European workers. Yes. And therefore, while the European worker might have been getting $50 a week mm. and the Gurindji weren't getting any money, yes. both of them were being exploited. Mm. And that's, you know, the kind of part of the key point that we, that, 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 that we really have to grasp. And as I say, on the surface, uh, you'd say, well, of course they're being exploited, and they are. But we've got to look at how that exploitation takes place within a capitalist system, not just, you know, as a kind of um, abstract um, element. Mm. Now, as I said, that was one extreme. Yeah. Now I want to go to another extreme case. I want to take the example of a cardiovascular surgeon oh, yes. <laughs> working in a New York hospital for a global corporate that runs hospitals in order to make a big profit and reinvest and to buy hospitals in Australia once the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Partnership oh boy, comes yes. into existence. Yes. So here we is. We've got this uh, cardiovascular surgeon. Now, she's on a package of salary and other benefits of 365000 US dollars a year, $1,000 a day. Mm -hmm. Can she be exploited? In Marxist terms, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. That's, that's exactly it. Um, now, of course she can be exploited. That's the one thing that she's got in common with the Gurindji. And yes. indeed, what she's got in common with them as well is that if she weren't being exploited, the corporation that employs her would go out of business, hmm. even though they're having to pay her $365,000 a year. Now, here again, we ask the question about... <clears throat> What are the socially necessary costs of reproducing her labour power? Now, first of all, clearly, house rents on Manhattan are somewhat different from house rents on Watty Creek uh, for the Gurindji um, in the, in the mid-1960s. So she has a cost of just of housing. 
I mean, I mean, she may well be paying, you know, you know, half of it. You know, I mean, she may well be paying, you know, a thousand dollars a week mm. to get any kind of accommodation. Then the other thing which we've become very conscious of in in relation to the United States is the cost of her own education. Yes, of course. Which she may well be paying off mm. at a thousand dollars a week. Yes. Um, and then she's thinking about, well, I've got to educate my children. Mm. So she's putting money away into an education fund so um, her children can go to university without having to go into huge amounts of um, indebtedness. And then, you know, I mean, I just go on from there yes, and, and get other things. But clearly, while she seems to be, you know, you say, how can someone getting $1,000 a day be exploited? Well, you've got to ask the fundamental question. What is the socially necessary cost of reproducing her labour power? Mm. Now, uh, you know, and that's the key to whether she's being exploited or not. You then have to look at um, the actual particulars of the case, and of course, you know, we can't possibly do that. Uh, but you'd have to ask yourself, uh, how much surplus value is this hospital corporation able to extract out of the labour that they buy from her? Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so Marx is going to say yes, She's being exploited, the Gurindji are being exploited, but not because they are only getting flour, sugar, tobacco and tea, but because the socially necessary cost of their labour power is less than the labour they supply to the Lord Vesti. But would you add surplus value to it? Is she producing more surplus value or the Gurindji producing more surplus value? Well, that I think is a factual question. Mm. Uh, you'd have to investigate it case by case. Mm. Um, it's quite possible that she may be producing more surplus value. Um, it's possible that, that they are producing more surplus value. Uh, there's, no, you know, there's no theoretical mm. answer to that question. Mm. There's no conceptual basis is to say, you know, because, I mean, well, look, let's take this case. You've got two cardiovascular surgeons working in the same hospital. Mm-hmm. One of them will produce more surplus value um, than the other. Um, they work harder, they'll, you know, they'll be more effective, you know, all of those kinds of sure. things. Sure, longer and hours, the, whatever. Yep. Yeah, and the, and the important thing is that, um, you know, from Marx's point of view, it really doesn't matter yep. about what the individual worker, you know, the individual cardiovascular surgeon does in that uh, hospital because the surplus value really depends upon everybody mm. working. It's what Marx calls social labour. That's right. Uh, yeah. It's why he's talking about the socially necessary costs, because there's no point in having the cardiovascular surgeon there unless you have you know, somebody in the front office, unless you have someone to clean up afterwards. I mean, all of that is what produces the average rate of profit you within forgot, this system. <clears throat> you forgot, you forgot uh, to mention the sick people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's the, um, you know, that's the key point to being able to understand this, that it is, you know, I mean, it is possible to take another extreme case, that, that she is only producing the amount of value that covers the socially necessary costs of the $365,000 a year they give her. Mm. But it's possible that, you know, you know, that she's inefficient or that she's you know, slacking or something. But that doesn't alter the fundamental analysis 
of how the system works. Because if everybody in the hospital did that, the hospital would go out of business. That's true. Yeah. So that, uh, I mean, I said this at a discussion one day about, you know, said, well, look, just as an example, I mean, if, if, you know, if you came to work and you hid round the back all day and you didn't do anything, mm-hmm. you know, then, then, uh, then the boss isn't exploiting you. Um, because you aren't adding anything to him. Yep. Um, but he said, oh, that's what I do every day. <laughs> but, you know, that may be true for one person in a factory. Yes. But if everyone in the factory did that, then the end of capitalism. That's true. So, I mean, that's what we've got to try to understand this, you know, um, to, to always break beyond this uh, notion. And one of the reasons why it's important is is, is to, it got us into this, you know, trouble when the work choices debate was on and we were being told that what we want, you know, is a fair day's pay. Yeah, good well, point. of course, there can be no such thing as a fair day's pay that, under capitalism. That's so true, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I've got an old you know, industrial butcher friend who's in his early 80s and he always said, you know, that's the key question. You know, if you if if you think there's such a thing as a fair day's pay, you don't understand capitalism. True. Uh, but it it's very hard to get across, you know, to people. But they think, well, I get all my award conditions, you know, um, you know, things are okay, you know, there's good health and safety at work, all of those things, you know, we've got a strong union, we can do all of those things. Therefore, you know, I'm not really being exploited. I'm not like the Gurindji. I'm not like the migrant woman in a uh, uh, sweatshop. Um, yeah. But, of course, it's worse in those situations. Yes, of course. But you're still being exploited. And, uh, I mean, you can be an electrician in Australia on you know, 150000 a year. Mm. You know? uh, but you would only be on that amount of money if they were exploiting you. Mm. Uh, and that's the point we've always got to keep driving across. There's no such thing as a fair day's pay. Yes, the question also that's come to mind in this discussion is that how do you then address the issue of socially useful work as opposed to the exploitative work? So where does that fit in the equation? Well, now, are you, you thinking about um, you know, school teachers and people? No, politician, no. politicians, real oh. estate agents. <laughs> uh, oh, um, <laughs> well... Um, um, you know, the, you know, I mean, if I could just jump to the kind of answer I thought you were asking. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, school teachers can fall, fall into two categories. Um, one of them, those who are directly employed by profit makers. Yes, that's so that schools. if you work for Kumon. Yep. You know, I mean, you're in one situation. You know, that's the minority of school. Te- you know, people involved in educational activities in Australia. Um, they want to make it the majority, but that's another question. That's right. See. Even in the non-government schools, they aren't. Most of them aren't really running as uh, profit-making corporations. Um, they function in a different way. And what you've got to look there again is how do people like that fit in? School teachers, public librarians, and people. Sure. And that means you're looking at again the social reproduction of labour power, mm. because what teachers are doing are adding to the ability of workers to go out into the workforce and um, add value. So you've got to see, see teachers and you know, people in that situation uh, operating within there. Uh, 
uh, how how they fit into this wider socialist uh, you know, this question of, of, of social exploitation. Uh, socially useful. Um, well, the way you put it, the example that I picked up about about politicians. Yes, I was going to say they are the agents used by capital to prepare the working class oh, for exploitation. Oh well, indeed. <laughs> you know, and the same true of you know of, of sort of supervisors. Yes. On the work front, I mean, they may or may not be actually adding value themselves, um, and that's true of a capitalist. Yes. I mean, there are some capitalists. You know, who employ you and then work alongside you. Hmm. You know, and so they're doing. You know, yes, they're adding some value, but of course they're taking the value that um, you produce away as well. Hmm. Um, so all of those supervisors, all of those agents of capital, yes, um, whether they're forty thousand dollar Bill Shorten, um, or whether they're Tony Abbott or anybody else, you know, they all they all fit into that. And one of the one of the things they do, and you know, professors of economics. One of the things they do is to lie about the system. Mm. And we said they will argue that, oh, what we want is a fair day's work and a fair day's pay. The other thing they'll say is that capital provides you with your job. Yep. You know, be grateful to them. Uh, <laughs> yes. it's out of, if it weren't for the capitalists, you wouldn't have a job. <laughs> yes. Well, the truth is, as we've just been talking about, is if it weren't for the worker, the capitalist wouldn't have any capital. Exactly. Because that's where it's come from. Mm. It's come through exploitation. That's and right. that's why, of all the elements in Marx's analysis, they can bear to hear words like capitalism and class, yes. the dreaded C words. They mm. don't want to hear them, but they would rather hear those words than Marx's saying exploitation is intrinsic to the system. Yes. There's no way out. I mean, if you didn't have it, the system would not operate at all. Uh, and our job, of course, uh, is to make sure that it doesn't. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit of a false dichotomy when, when people look at this, this whole system and they don't understand the role of surplus value, the role of exploitation, how exploited they are. And, and they compare themselves, as you were saying before, to a person who's working in a factory. Um and it, it doesn't seem so bad. Life's reasonable. Even the students are paying fees today. They say, well, you know, we'll pay it off when we get a job. It's almost like complicity and acceptance of what's being dished out to them. And that is frustrating that they don't understand what's happening to them. Yeah. But of course, you know, one of the reasons for that is that in the past in Australia, you've had, you know, an active labor movement. Yes. That has won many of those um, benefits for us. Yes. You know, and that people look at. You know, you know, I mean, one of the reasons why the Work Choices campaign went so bad for the government and for the capitalist class was because people understood that. Hmm. And unfortunately, of course, as the decades go on and you get more of this false propaganda coming out of the um, anti-Labor Party, yes. um, it's harder and harder to get those ideas immediately understood by people. Yes. Um, so... We have a major know, fight in front of us, in other words. Well, well we, you know, we've always had that fight in front of us. True, true, because, true. Because, you know, as I've <laughs> have said once or twice before, we all live in a super-saturated super solution of bourgeois bullshit. <laughs> Thank you. On that note, we shall end this conversation, Humphrey. We'll be back in a month for another it's, one. It's been delightful. Thank okay. you. Bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. And that was Humphrey McQueen 
one of our regular contributors, and he's a freelance writer and a political commentator. We have come to the end of the program, and I'd like to thank Aaron Malwaganam, uh, who was interviewed by Chris Lee, who is a contributor to uh, Green Left Weekly, and thanks to Chris. And, of course, the music you heard was the Papua New Guinea um, number was by George Tallack and Phil Oaks, who sang the I Ain't Marching Anymore. We are waiting for Asia Pacific Currents to come and put their program on. Nobody at the door, but they will be here soon. So goodbye from me for another fortnight. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.